Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. I love the grace of God, don't you? When we sing this song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, uh, next week we'll talk about the history of that song and, and the person that wrote the song. But I love the grace of God. One of the most clear spokesmen for who Christ is and the transforming power of Jesus is a man named C.S. Lewis. How many have ever heard the name? You know his books, The Lion, the Witch, and The Wardrobe. C.S. Lewis was one of the most brilliant literature minds in the world. He actually taught at Cambridge and Oxford universities, the two most prestigious universities in the world. But he was a devout atheist. And one day, his friend, who was a literature professor with him, challenged him about what he believed. And when he challenged him, God began to awaken the heart of C.S. Lewis and the man who probably became the greatest living Christian apologetist of the last 100 years was born again. You know what his friend's name was? J.R. Token. He wrote a book called Lord of the Rings. And you know what's interesting? Just as a side note, C.S. Lewis felt from that moment on he should never write again unless Jesus was veiled throughout his writings. So in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, who's the lion? Jesus. You can read the screw tape letters. You can read the problem with pain. You can read all of his books, and Jesus is woven throughout all of them. J.R. Tolkien, who led him to Christ, felt just the opposite, that you could just write good literature and influence people through good literature. Now, what's really interesting is the person whose, read, whose writings we still remember or C.S. Lewis. Why? Because when you put Jesus in the middle of something, it becomes eternal and not temporary, no matter who you are. C.S. Lewis was once speaking out on his faith in a forum where many different religions were represented. And it began by asking this question, what sets your religion or belief system apart from any other religion in the world? And they went from the Buddhist and the Hindu and the Muslim. They went through each of them. And then they got to C.S. Lewis. Now, many of you know most Eastern religions believe in karma. How many of you are familiar with karma? I'm not talking about boy George, karma, 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 chameleon. Okay, I, I mean, karma. Karma is the belief system that if you do something bad, it's going to come back to you later. It actually flows through a lot of the Eastern religions, including Hinduism, which believes that if you do something wrong in this life, you come back as a lower form of life in the next life. So there are actually people in India starving to death with cows walking around in front of them, but they won't eat those cows because they think it might be mama <laughs> or distant relatives. True story. So they got to C.S. Lewis. And this is why this is so significant this morning, because that's how many people feel about spirituality today. They feel like there's this big buffet table. You know, I used to think it was buffet before I moved to Louisiana. Now I know it's a buffet. I didn't know why, because if you see some of the stuff that's on there, it's scary. 
frog legs, chicken leg, alligator. I mean, it is, it is scary. Buffet. Many people believe that it is a large buffet of just re- belief systems that you can kind of go and choose. And all of them really end up being the same. They're just different means to getting the same place. The last person that answered the question, what's different from your belief system than any other belief system in the world was C.S. Lewis, and he answered very simply, that's easy, it's grace. It's grace. You see, in most fairy tales, the hero ends up killing the villain, and that's the way the story ends. In Christianity, the hero dies for the villain, which was you and me. What is so amazing about grace? The word grace is used 131 times in the Bible, 124 times in the New Testament, 86 times in the writing of Paul. That's why he's often called the apostle of grace. John writes in 1 John 1.17, for the law was given through, who, who gave, gave us the law? Moses. Who? It came through. It came through. Okay, you know, until you keep saying that loud, I'm going to keep saying that. It came through, it came through Moses. But, see, the law was the truth. But grace, the unearned, undeserved favor of God and truth came through who? Jesus Christ. The law, which was the truth, came through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what is grace? Hopefully today, I'll give you an acronym, and after today's time together, you'll never, ever forget it. I heard this probably 40 years ago, and I never forgot it. Grace, G-R-A-C-E. It stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. Say that with me. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Why is it so amazing? Because without it, everyone who sins dies and remains eternally separated from God. Worse, you live here on earth bound by sin. When man sinned, three foreigners instantly entered into the world that God never created man to experience. As a matter of fact, you know God didn't create us to live with them because people who are overcome with them have to live on medication. You know what they are? Fear, guilt, and shame. When Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, the first thing they did was they what? They hid and they covered themselves up with fig leaves. Go ahead, say it, ouch. Fig leaves. And then when God came looking for them, he said, Adam, where are you? And he said, I was naked, so I was afraid. And so I hid fear, guilt, and shame. You see, a lot of people think that the reason that God doesn't want you to sin is because it does something to God. It does do something to God. But from the human standpoint, what sin does to us is it brings in tormentors, fear and guilt and shame in your life that you struggle with. Now, Let me ask this question. How many of you are born again? How many of you are spirit-filled? 
How many of you know that if you took your last breath in one minute, the next face you'd see is the face of Jesus? How many of you are completely sure your sin is forgiven? How many believe that when you say Jesus, he says, yes, my child? Okay. So how many of you of those same people have been going through terrible, terrible circumstances, and yet you had peace that was overwhelming to you? And people would walk up going, aren't you in a panic? I mean, what? And you go, I have peace. How, how can you have peace? Because I have Jesus and he's peace. Have you experienced that? How many of you remember before you were born again and you had everything you wanted and you were miserable because you were ridden by fear and guilt and shame and it didn't matter how good the circumstances were, you were still miserable. Do you know what that misery is? Look right here. It's a down payment on your eternity. The fear and the guilt and the shame. Do you know what peace, joy, and contentment are in the middle of life's difficulties? It's a down payment on your eternity. See, see, a lot of people think that, that hell is a place that God created for people that don't like him, and so he's going to send them there. That, that, that's, that's not true. As a matter of fact, let me share something with you that most people don't even know. Hell was never created for people. Jesus himself said hell was created for the devil and his angels, but that as we've chosen to follow his path, so we people are being sent there as well. I'll give you one better than that. Do you know God's never sent anybody to hell? People go, whoa, wait a minute, Pastor, are you, are you saying nobody goes to hell? I didn't say that. He's never said... If you go to hell, you're going to go to hell because you didn't listen to every prayer that was prayed, every sunrise that came that reminded you if there was a creation, there was a creator, every act of kindness, every scripture you ever heard, every Christian you came across, every blessing that ever came from an unknown place that you didn't know where it came from. If you go to hell, you're going to have to deny everything that God did chasing you all the way to your Christless eternity. And as Pastor Chris said in the earlier part of the service, when most of us were born again, you know what happened? We just stopped running. And guess who was chasing us? Well, no, that's who you were chasing. Guess who? <laughs> Jesus was chasing us. Jesus was chasing us. Why is grace so powerful? Grace saves us from the power of death. Grace gives us access to all that Jesus is instead of what our sin deserves. We get what he is instead of what we deserve. Ephesians 2.8 says this, For it is by grace, God's remarkable compassion and favor drawing you to Christ, that you've been saved, actually delivered from judgment, and given eternal life through faith. And this salvation is not of yourselves. It's not through your own effort but it's undeserved and gracious. It's a gift of God, not the result of your own works, you obeying the law, nor your attempts to keep the law so that no one could be able to boast or take credit in any way for his salvation. Grace freely gives us a gift that we could never achieve on our best moment, our best day, our best week, or our best month. It gives us salvation, forgiveness. That's why. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. 
But sometimes things aren't really seen for what they are until you see them in action. So today's story is going to give us a picture of grace. It's found in John chapter 8, verse 1. Read the story with me. And Jesus walked up to the Mount of Olives near the city where he'd spent the night. Then at dawn, Jesus appeared in the temple courts again, and soon all the people gathered around to listen to his words. So he sat down and he taught them, okay? Let, let me explain this. Jesus came down from where he normally prayed, and when he did, he'd been teaching at the local church, the synagogue, and so he came to where he'd been teaching, and the people gathered. They got up that morning and go, hey, there's a rabbi in town. His name is Jesus. He's healing people. He's doing miracles. Then he said, he's the son of God. Let's go hear him. They came to church. They did what you did this morning. They got on their church clothes. They got their church mindset on. They, they, they brought their offering. And they came to church. They came to church. Say it with me. They came to church. Say it again. They came to church. Now, that's the setting. Then in the middle of his teaching, in the middle of Pastor Jacob preaching, the doors fly open in the back. And two pastors in town, the religious scholars and the Pharisees, these are the most upper echelon of religious leaders there are. The only equivalent here would be the bishop of Lafayette. Broke through the crowd. They broke through service. They come through here. We have security up in the front row. He's got a gun drawn on him right here. And they come through, watch this. Then in the middle of his teaching, the religious scholars and the Pharisees broke through the crowd and brought a woman who had been... They went to Four Corners. And that old hotel has been there for 40 years. How many of you know what place I'm talking about? How do you know? Just a question. And they hid in a closet. Because according to Jewish law, you couldn't accuse someone of something unless you had two or more witnesses. So there were at least two of them hiding in a closet. And this woman, who was a prostitute, frequented this place. And when her next customer came in, not before, not as they came walking out, while they were in the act of adultery, these people, religious leaders, the bishop and the pastor, jumped out of the closet door and said, we got you, and began dragging her from there to the holiest place in the city. I got a bunch of questions about this story. How about you? Let me, let me give you the first question. Where was the man? Everybody, the lady's going, yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I, that's what I'm saying. Where is that man? Swung so hard, my watch almost fell off. <laughs> Where is that man? Okay. And, and then 
Here's the next question. How did they know? Like, hey, man, we need a hooker. Look, I don't tell anybody, but you know, there's a, you know, man, I know a girl, her name is, you know, Shakrisha, and she, you know, I mean, she's, she, you know, Gigi is her cousin, and you know, they, and they go, and they grab this woman. One Bible commentator said that when they brought her to Jesus, she was half clothed. It's very obvious she was not willing. She actually believed this day would be the day that she would die. She would die. It was not only going to be the worst, most humiliating moment of her life. It was going to be the last day of her life. Caught in the act of adultery and made her stand in the middle of of everyone. Stand up. Stand up. Do you think she was looking out at people? What's the answer to that? What was she doing? She was looking straight down in guilt and in shame. I want you to think of the worst thing you've ever done. Imagine someone busting in and catching you in that and dragging you to church and accusing you and saying, we saw it with their own eyes. Here it is, here it is. And then they say this. They brought the woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery and made her stand in the middle of everyone. Stand up. And then they said to Jesus, teacher, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. Doesn't Moses' law command us to stone to death a woman like this? Remember, the law came through, but grace and truth came through. Jesus, tell us what to do and what we should do with her. They were only testing Jesus because they were hoping to trap him with his own words and accuse him of breaking Moses' law. Let me just stop here a moment. I want you to think of the mindset of someone who was so incredibly arrogant that they were willing to ruin a woman's life and have her killed to prove a point. Think of all the premeditated pain that's going to be inflicted on others so that they can trap Jesus. But Jesus didn't answer them. Instead, he simply bent down and wrote in the dust with his finger, angry. They kept insisting, answer the question. So Jesus stood up and looked at them and said, let's have the man who has never had a sinful desire throw the first stone at her. One translator said, it's implied, let's have the man who never considered committing adultery throw the first stone. Because the law said don't commit adultery. Jesus said if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So he's instituting a new law. Not the law of death, but the law of grace. And then he bent over again, and he wrote some words in the dust. Now, here, here, this is amazing. This is amazing. How many of you got a Bible with red letters? The red letters are the words that Jesus spoke, okay. Do you know that this writing on the ground is the only thing we ever know of that Jesus ever wrote and we don't even know what it is? You know what I think he wrote? 
Let him that never wanted to be with Trixie cast the first stone. They see, there's Boudreaux. You want to be with her? Okay, there's Thibodeau. I see Sam over there. He's nasty. All right, let's get to get him. That Jesus is writing. But you know what's so amazing? That when Moses was given the Ten Commandments, the first set of Ten Commandments, you know who wrote the Ten Commandments? The finger of God. So now the finger of God is writing a new commandment. It is a commandment of the grace of God. And he bent over again, writing some words in the dust. Upon hearing that, her accusers slowly left the crowd one at a time, beginning with the other translation says with the chief religious leader. Remember, in the East, age is revered. So the oldest religious leader would have been the most respected person there. So they all have their rocks, and they're ready to stone her to death. And in actual stoning, you would actually, they'd sometimes put a bag over someone's head, and they'd take a rock, and you'd go, and you'd begin indiscriminately hitting them in the head until they died. And so now, they begin, and all you can hear is stones dropping on one side and then the other. Upon hearing this, her accusers slowly left the crowd, beginning with the oldest religious leaders to the youngest with a, a what? A convicted conscience. They came coming to hear the new teacher. They left with convicted consciences until finally Jesus was left Come on, give me Jesus. In my darkest moment, give me Jesus. In my darkest moment, if I have to be alone with somebody, give me Jesus. Look at me. The Bible says in Deuteronomy that in order to be killed, you have to have two or more witnesses. So when it went down and now there was no longer 50 people, there was 25 people, 25 people, there was 10 people, 10 people, there was five people, five people, there was three people. And she goes, now, if, 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 if one more leaves and it's just me and him, I get my life back. I get my life back. And then number three leaves and it's her and Jesus. And listen to what he says. Until finally, Jesus was left alone with the woman still standing there in front of him. And he stood back up. Remember, she was standing up and said to her, Dear woman, where are your accusers? Is there no one to condemn you? Look around. She replied, You know why she had to look around? Because she was just doing this. And she looked up and it was her and Jesus. And she said, I see no one, Lord. And Jesus said, come on, read it with me. Then I certainly do not condemn you either. Oh. Poor Jesus gets so much bad publicity. The task of the modern-day church, one writer said, is to rescue Jesus from modern-day Christianity. I see no one. I certainly don't condemn you either. Go. See, if he would have just stopped there, people would have said that, that I love Jesus. 
He's like Oprah. You get forgiven, and you get a car, and you get a new life, and you get forgiven, and you, you don't have to do anything. But he says something else. He didn't just forgive her. Forgiveness is what she needed to be free of the fear and guilt and shame that had controlled her all of her life. Then he says this, from now on, go from now on and from, another translation says, go and sin. What is he saying? You can't be a prostitute anymore. Now, some people hear this and go, well, I mean, didn't Jesus know? I mean, she needed job training. I mean, couldn't he have said, okay, just narrow it down to five and then work as a waitress on the side. And when your money picks up, then things can change. And when you get better and maybe you go a little job training, go up here to technical school. And when you get through technical school, then you can work things out. No, look at me. The grace of God not only forgives you, God gives you grace and faith to believe you can live differently from the moment he changes your life. Jesus did three things the grace of God always does when it encounters us. Number one, it was communication without condemnation. How many have ever been condemned by religious people? St. Augustine said, religious people always seem to be startled by the grace of God. Jesus never came to condemn anyone. You say, Pastor, what do you mean? Well, let me give you the words of Jesus that are in red. John 3, 17, Jesus said, God did not send his son into the world to judge and to condemn the world, but to be its and to. God wants to rescue you from the things that bring fear, guilt, and shame on you and torment you. Legalism condemns, but Christ always communicates the heart of the Father. He communicated without condemning him. Here's the second thing grace does. It's what Jesus did. He challenged her without condoning her sin. Though he caught her in sin, he told her she couldn't stay there. She called her the real grace of God. When you experience the real grace of God, it not only is the power to forgive sin, it is the power to transform your life, to free you from addiction, from immorality, from bitterness, from anger and resentment. Do you become perfect? No, but you do get free. I don't know if you've ever been in jail before, okay? All you care about is freedom. When they unlock that door and you walk out, that's free. As a believer, many of us have been set free. Some of us need to walk a little further from where we came from. And the grace of God opened the jail cell, but the grace of God also empowers you with the Holy Spirit to live a different life and to live a holy life. Someone said the greatest miracle God ever performs is not when he opens blind eyes or raises the dead, but when he takes an unholy man out of an unholy world, washes him in the blood of Jesus, puts him back in that unsame unholy world, and keeps him holy by the grace of God. He challenged without condoning. And then he said, where are your accusers? Hey, that girl had been accused all her life. You've been down there with Gigi, haven't you? She'd been accused all of her life. Now, I want to share something with you that I don't want you to quote me by. I, I am an expert in prostitutes. 
I knew that would bless you. I was not raised in church. I was raised in a bar. When I gave my life to Christ when I was 14 and a half years old, my dad and my stepmom kicked me out of the house and I moved in with my mom and served beer to bar every day when I came home from school from the time I was 14 until I was 17 and a half years old, every day. That's where I started preaching at my mom's bar. You say, Pastor, how did you serve beer? Look, here's what I told mama. Mama, if you're going to make me serve beer when I come home from school, I'm going to preach the gospel. So I'm not going to do one without the other one. They had centerfolds of women on the back wall, and I would pull, pull them down and put up signs, repent, no drunks will enter the kingdom of heaven. True story. There were many women who were immoral that worked in my mama's bar. And so I knew more than how they looked when they dressed skanky. I know their story. Almost all of them fatherless. Almost all of them born out of an immoral relationship themselves. Molested and abused as children. And then when they grow up, they are so hardened and so calloused in the most intimate parts of their life that to give yourself to someone else is just another transaction because it doesn't matter anymore. That's most prostitutes. They're broken. They're wounded. They're hurt. And every man comes and just takes advantage and adds to the callousness and adds to the pain and adds to the hurt. Jesus challenged her without condoning what she'd done. Here's the third thing Jesus did. He had compassion without compromising. He said, I don't condemn you, but if you don't leave your sin, your sin and the devil will condemn you. It will. As a matter of fact, some people believe they're actually more compassionate than God. There are people who live certain lifestyles. You go, yeah, but they're just, they're just like living together. A pastor, they're just like, you know, they're like a certain you know, sexual preference or lifestyle, or they're just, you know, they're, they're, Coke is their thing, or, you know, meth is their thing, or, you know, they just drink a little bit, and, you know, they get drunk several times. Like, like somehow you think that you can excuse something that's fine with you, but not fine with God, so that you're more compassionate than God himself. Listen carefully to me. God commands us to leave sinful behavior, not because it's bad for him, but because it's destructive to you. When you break the commands of this book, you don't break God and you don't break them. You break you. Every day. Come on, those of you that have TikTok and Facebook and MySpace. Is MySpace even a thing anymore? Okay, like whatever space or talk or tick or whatever it is. The latest, you know, Snapchat or Chump or Chump, whatever it is. Every day I read the news. Every day these headlines. 19-year-old blogger, a million followers on YouTube, died. 22-year-old beauty queen, famous, died. 25-year-old model, died. Famous porn actress, 23, died. And you look at those and you wonder, 
why do these people who have everything that they, anyone would ever want, why do they finally die? Look at me. When you violate the very principles for which God made you and how he made you, you make life unlivable. Not for God. For you. For you. You were never made to live with guilt and shame and fear. You were never, that's why you got to medicate yourself to deal with it. Now listen, I'm not against anybody that's using medication and people have chemical imbalances and don't think I'm hating on that. Look, I've taken more medication than all of y'all and that was before I got saved. I'll let you figure that out later. But, but, but listen carefully to me. You might say, Pastor Jacob, you, that, that, that's easy for you to say, but you, you, you're a preacher. No, I'm the son of a barmaid. No, I, I'm, I'm the brother of four sisters that got pregnant, 13, 14, and 50. No, I'm the, the, the little brother of my drug dealer brother who was my hero. I know that when you violate the principles of this book, you make life unlivable. I've seen it with my own eyes. This isn't preacher talk. My life only got put together by the power of this book. All things are held together by the word of his mouth, and it is his word and the power of the Holy Spirit that brought my life back together. Jesus showed compassion without compromising. What most people call the judgment of God is not the judgment of God. It's them doing stupid things to themselves and blaming God for it. If you keep going from man to man to man to man to man and go, God, why can't you send me a good man? God's like, why don't you read the instruction manual, idiot? I don't know why I can't find anybody good at Cowboys. My mama found my daddy at the strip. Why can't I find somebody there? They met at Mardi Gras, passing floats. Yeah, and then they threw up. If you meet that way, you might be throwing up the rest of your life too. Look, look, look at me. The, the, the truth is, how, how many of you are tired of $5 gas? Are you tired of it yet? Let me encourage you, $6 gas is coming. Enjoy $5 while it's here. But can I tell you how you can get over paying that much for gas? Come on, you can show the government. You can show, I know. Start putting gallons of water in your tank. You'll show them. Then it won't cost you $150 like me to fill up your truck. <laughs> It'll cost you $5,000 to get a new engine. You know why? Because if you violate the instruction manual, you violate yourself. Grace always lifts you. Grace always loves you. But grace never leaves you where it found you. It never leaves you where it found you. But you know what I love most about grace? Grace reverses the curse of the law. Like, like, like that morning when they woke up and went to church, these religious leaders 
We're the free ones, the righteous ones, the innocent ones, and the judges. But when church was over, they left bound, guilty, judged, and naked. And the woman that was drawn there naked, she left free. She left forgiven. She left with hope and a future. That's what grace does. Grace gives us what we don't deserve because Jesus took our sin and became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in Jesus. The cross is the place where Jesus came to lay down all of his righteousness to pick up all of our sin so that we can go to that same cross and lay down all of our sin and pick up all of his righteousness. That's the power of the cross. That's what's so amazing about grace. I want to close. Can I close with my favorite verse in the whole Bible? If you want me to stop, I'll stop right now. This says I've gone a minute and 27 seconds over. I want to give you, first two weeks I was a Christian, I read the entire New Testament. It's 14 years old. Here's my favorite verse. In 48 years of reading the Bible, this is the verse. This revelation changed my life. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. I want you to read it with me. For God, stop. God made, God made, God made. God made the sun, God made the stars. He spoke it, he made it. He made the streams, he made the rivers, he made the oceans, he made the mountains, he made, he made it. He made it. In other words, we didn't have anything to do with it, he just made it happen. For God made the only one who did not know sin. Who is that? Who is it? Who's the only one that didn't know sin on earth? Jesus to become sin for he made him Jesus was God in the flesh he could never sin so he had to make him to be sin he made him to be sin he made him to be sin so that say that so that how many parents we got here have you ever looked at your kids and go, do you know how hard I work so that you could have what you have do you know how hard I killed myself so that so that so that so that we might the righteousness of God through our union with him. Let me read it to you like I like to read it. God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for Jacob. Daddy was married five times. Was selfish, abuser, immoral. God made Jesus who knew no sin when he cried on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first moment he felt what you and I know to be separated from the Father. He'd never been separated from the Father till that moment. 
to become sin for us, for me, so that Jacob might become the righteousness of God in Jesus. Look at me. I, I could tell you that you're sinners and everybody would be happy to walk out of here going, Pastor, you're right, we're all sinners. But let me tell you what, Jesus died so that you could say, I am righteous. And to not proclaim that as a born-again child of God is to deny everything so that he paid for. Could you be righteous on your own and never sin a day in your life ever? So you know what? God had to make you to be righteous. Just like Jesus could never sin, he had to make him to be sin. He had to make you to be righteous. Look at me. I say humbly, I say with tears in my eyes, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. Do I deserve it? No more than I deserve the death of my Savior on the cross. But I am the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Do I deserve it? No. My birth, my name, my family, my education, nothing in my life, nothing that I've done. I would say he's definitely not that. But God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin for me, for you, that you might become the righteousness of God in Jesus. So I want you to just close your eyes. I want you to open your hands, palm of your hands, leave them on your lap, open. And I want you to say this with me, dear Lord Jesus. Grace is so amazing. I don't deserve it. Thank you. God's riches at Christ's expense Thank you for your amazing grace. Father, thank you for your amazing grace. I receive it. I receive it. Now I want you to say this with me boldly. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. I am God's righteousness in Jesus Christ. And now with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to ask you the most important question of your life. Jesus said, unless a man or woman was born again, they wouldn't see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, unless a man or woman were born again, they wouldn't enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then he said, don't be surprised that I tell you, you must be born again. Have you been born again? You say, Pastor, I've been christened, I've been baptized, I've joined the church. Isn't that good enough? That's a great start, but that's not what Jesus said. He said, you must be born again. Well, Pastor, how can I be born again? It's as easy as ABC. A, admit that you're a sinner. B, believe that Jesus Christ became your sin bearer and that he died for your sin so you wouldn't have to die with your sin. Someone will die for your sin. He did or you will. 
and C, confess Christ as your Lord and Savior as you turn away from sin through repentance to be born again. So if you're in, you say, Pastor, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus, but I've never prayed to be born again. Pastor, would you pray for me today? I want to begin my spiritual journey. I want to know God. I want to know the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. I want a relationship with God. If that's you, on the count of three, I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand high. By doing that, you're saying, I want to be born again today. It only happens once, just like the day you were born. My birthday is June the 17th, but my spiritual birthday is the week before Easter. That day I was born again. The old Jacob died, a new one was raised from the dead. So on the count of three, if that's you, just raise your hand. And by doing that, you're just saying, Pastor, pray for me. I want to be born again today. I've never been born again. One, God brought you here. Nothing is ever an accident. Two, everything in your life has led up to this moment. Every dream that was spiritual, every person that came across your path, every scripture you read, every little blip that you saw reminding you of God was for this moment. And now's the day for you to be born again and to know God. Three, if that's you, lift your hand high. I'm going to pray for you. Lift it high. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. High. Fourteen. High. Fifteen. All right. You can put your hand down. Last ten seconds. Pastor, I didn't raise my hand with these fifteen, but I should have. My heart's about to beat out of my chest. I know this is what I need. I've been afraid. I've been ashamed. I didn't raise my hand, but I should have. Raise your hand and wave it at me right now. I'm asking this last time just for you. Yes, 16, 17. Wave it at me. All right. Now, let's pray out loud, church, with all of those who raise their hand. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe that on the cross, you took my guilt, my sin, and my shame, and you died for it. I believe you faced hell for me so I would not have to go and you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth and a relationship with your father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn away from sin to be born again. Today, God is my father. Jesus is my savior and I'm born again in Jesus' name, amen. 